Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Grab your pants. The CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Good morning everyone. <laughs> We're really happy to be here in the studio. It's one of our last shows for the, for the year, is that yes, right? Yes, yes. And, and count on one of our last shows to be the one that we make all these little errors. So. <laughs> we're sorry about the... We're, we're already in holiday mode. I love that. <laughs> so we're here with Ayan, Ruby, myself, George and Lauren. And it's going to be another very, very hot day today. 36 degrees. It's currently 20, 25, sorry. And afternoon showers and possible storm. So mm. hope I have you to all say stay out of the weather. It's much easier to get up at least in this weather. I mean, I think yes. there are lots of good things about this weather, but a 36-degree day is a particularly hot one. But then when you're up at 6 a.m., it's just, like, beautiful. Yeah. It's <laughs> nice, eh? You are so inspirational. <laughs> beautiful. Live your best life. <laughs> just this person. time of year, you know. Are you know? a morning person? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I would never call myself that, and I don't think anyone I live with would call me that either. Um. But yeah, it's this time of year, you know, just Did feeling you? the holiday, feeling the holiday feels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have a huge show today. Do you want to tell us what you're doing, George? What I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Well, what about your, so we've got an audio from the Blacks, Black Lives Matter um, rally first up. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to hear an interview that I did with Laura Duvet, who's a queer artist. What's happening after that? Yeah, and then at 7.25, Rosemary Calder, um, who's a health and social policy advisor at Victoria University, is going to be joining us to discuss the link between socioeconomic status and chronic disease. Um, And then after that at 7.35, Chelsea um, Clark, who is a senior lawyer, is going to be discussing um, a case before the High Court which could have huge impacts on the rights of asylum seekers living on shore in Australia. Um, and then I think we're going to be going to some community announcements. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we we lined up a last-minute and very exciting interview as well, didn't we? Mm. We have two, in fact. Uh, one is with Jasmine Ali, who was the organiser of the Black Lives Matter rally on Sunday. And the other is with Charlotte Lynch from the Whistleblowers Activist and Citizens Alliance about all things protest. Huge day. Mm. Yeah. So, so let's jump into the audio from the Black Lives Matter um, rally. Say it loud, say it clear. Unfortunately, 
the local principal come out yesterday and tell young people at that school not to come as well. So anyone who is standing here right now is standing up to a lot of oppression, a lot of hatred. And we're standing in solidarity, solidarity with them. Um, to represent our community from what's happened on the 4th of December. Um, it's not, you know, I, like I'm sure everyone's aware what happened that night. It was really brutal. I don't think a lot of coverage has happened past 9 o'clock when the SWATS team came on to the estate and um, was really brutal towards the kids, especially the youth, you know. Um, so that's why I'm here. I'm here to support our community. And it is a rally for Black Lives Matters, but um, all lives matter. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason I came out, I mean, I politically identify as a socialist for one thing. So obviously I think there's a common interest in fighting against um, racism, like racist scapegoating of, you know, um, vulnerable people, oppressed people in society. So I think it's like the duty of like, you know, collective ordinary people workers to come out and stand against that because I think like solidarity that kind of those kind of values historically are how um, you know you can fight against racism and actually one day end it. <laughs> uh, so I went to the um, community meeting that was held uh, just in the community centre over there um, the other day and I heard uh, the accounts of people who lived in the towers and what they experienced that night from both um, like the alt-right and the neo-Nazis and the police and how upset they were and how important it was to them to sort of have some sort of position uh, where they got together and sort of identified themselves to the public as, you know, being hurt and needing better support. So I came down to support them on that. So. I think um, I'm here today to show support to the local residents. I'm not a local resident. Uh, to show support to local residents, especially in regards to what happened to them about a couple of weeks ago, uh, to stand together to show that they're not isolated. Um, often uh, these communities can feel very isolated, and we are here to say that we're in solidarity with you. We know what you go through. We're against racism, and we're in, in support of, of, of you. Events like this, where the community can come together and be strong and be united um, will help us move forward to working with not only the police but you know um, council and local um, organizations in the community and stuff like that so hopefully it'll all go well. Milo should never have been allowed to speak here. He was welcomed by the police. He was welcomed by our higher authority. He was escorted into a place that was built by the people he wants to terminate. This place was it's built by us and he wants to get rid of us and yet the police paved away and allowed him to intrude and walk in. The police paved away for a hate creature. He is an actual terrorist. And while they did that, they had the backs, they had their backs against the people of Flemington, the people of this community, and they had their pepper spray sprays towards us. They did this to a community of people that they already have a strained relationship with. They have a decade history of racial profiling in this very community with these very people and yet they happily turned their backs towards us when we needed it the most. <laughs> Victoria Police has been stopping black men driving here with a Caucasian girl in their car and asking the girl if she's okay because she's in the car with a black man. They've been asking young black kids off the street if they knew something about the robbery that happened a week ago. 
They have been uh, getting groups of African kids and asking them stereotypical questions, selling them the portrait that they've already painted of them and convincing them that despite being born here, these African kids, these Muslim kids, these different kids will always have to answer to the higher Caucasian authority. No. They coax them, they coax them to accept this feeling of being an outsider, ready to be questioned because someone that looks like them is blacklisted in their books. We have reports, we've done our research, we come from police accountability project, we come from legal centers, we've gone into this and we have proof that in this community defined by these parameters, that the police continue to harass and racially profile on us based on the colour of our skin and what we bear on our heads. We respect freedom of speech, yes, but we do not stand for freedom of alienation. We do not stand for freedom of double standards. We will not allow colorism. We will not facilitate the freedom of police authority to make us feel like we owe them an explanation for the stigma they associate with the color of our skin and the clothes we wear and the religion we follow. We respect freedom of speech, but there is no freedom in hate. There is no freedom in Australia's black history repeating itself in 2017. There is no freedom in being interrogated by the government and the authorities' eyes. What about our freedom? We want freedom from historical oppression and stigma that is associated with our beings because we are Muslim, because we are black, and because we are different. We want that freedom. We will fight for our freedom and our equal representation, okay? Our speech is equally as significant to deserve police protection, not police interrogation. Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right. Black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right. Black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite. Unite to fight the right, black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right. And that was some audio we recorded at the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, movement rally on Sunday at the Flemington Kensington community. Um, and now we are going to hear George interview Laura Duvet on her work, which engages with her own identity as a fat femme and others who identify more on the more feminine spectrum in the queer community. So I'm here at my friend Fonz's plant shop, Uno, with Laura Duvet, who has some artwork being exhibited. Hi, Laura, how are you going? Good, thanks. Yeah, just showing some art, <laughs> looking at some plants. <laughs> A good time. <laughs> so, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what this exhibit is and what the work, what the meaning behind the work is? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, my work tends to reflect my community, which is like the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, I tend to photograph a lot of queer joy because I feel like there is so much narrative around. Uh, 
sad, sad energy around like queerness. There is like there's so much heaviness to be queer or to be trans, um, and I feel like uh, photographing queer joy is the way that I kind of counteract that. Um, yeah, so that's I guess kind of what I do. Um, I tend to uh, photograph a lot of friends of mine and people in my community who are doing uh, amazing like activist work in their own rights. Um, I have some of the pieces here. Uh, speak like some of the uh, people who are in these portraits are like speakers or uh, like comedians or activists and writers. Um, and I think it's just mostly me wanting to show what I see in them and how beautiful they are to me and just trying to reflect that and I guess other people have found that kind of nice and relatable and yeah it's been really well received which is nice yeah it does sound really beautiful and so is it that you're wanting to create that positive imagery as opposed to because you mentioned that they're activists and they're doing this political work but you're focusing on that on a different kind of angle with the way that you present there is so much anger which is rightfully so like there is so much like anger in activism because that is what pushes you to uh do better work but I think what I want to show in my photos of my friends or people that I meet is their vulnerability their softness their their energy that is emitted through shooting with me and usually when I'm shooting someone the space that we create has good music has really good energy like I make sure that we have enough time to warm up and they feel really comfortable with like within the space that we've created um and yeah I'm I'm all about a lot of color and vibrancy because the queer community is full of vibrancy kind of want to show that that spirit that's kind of within all these queer people who go through so much trauma who go through so much shit um including myself and I kind of want to show the strength and the vulnerability and the the, the gentleness that is there that so often is hidden um, especially through activist spaces and stuff I kind of want to show that and so in terms of like I'm just thinking about self-determination and and when you do take a photo of someone do you have a discussion with them about how they want to be represented is it is it like a collaborative thing or do you go in with the intention of how you want the image to to look how does it work it's 100% a collaborative effort like I'll go in with one idea but I will always be like what do you think what do you want to do how do you want to be portrayed how do you want to be seen um because I will like most of the time people will just let me do whatever I want to do um, but if someone has a certain idea, I want it to be as much about them as it is about my own creation. Um, and I, I think I also want to photograph people who are not seen as worthy as their straight counterparts or their thin counterparts or their white counterparts. Like, I want to make sure that we move away from this heterosexual male gaze and I want it to be a feminine gaze. I want it to be um, a gaze that... Um, is accepting of different bodies, of fat bodies, of trans bodies, um, of POC bodies, like people of colour bodies. Like, you know, like I want I want it to show the world that we're actually in um, that I feel like so often is completely ignored by the Australian media, which is incredibly white. It's so empowering having that representation and just looking at the work. So I can really see the message that you're trying to bring there. Yeah, and as, like, a fat queer woman, like... I want it to be 
really intersectional because like I feel like I've rarely seen myself reflected in in film and TV and photography even uh, unless I have really actively looked for it which I found some amazing photographers but they're all very US centric whereas in Australia there just doesn't seem to be that much like there is now there is a movement and I can see that changing but in the last 10 years or so I've not seen anyone else doing work that's sort of like mine that shows this tenderness that is within the queer community and is so fucking important like yeah so speaking about tenderness and gentleness I really want to talk about about sort of I guess misogyny in queer spaces and whether you think that's a prevalent thing and whether your work is kind of addressing that in promoting that more positive feminine sort of representation definitely I mean like I definitely have found that in like the larger LGBT spaces they are very white cis gay men like there is no room for a fat femme there is no room for a black femme there is no room for trans people like they're kind of an afterthought and I don't want them to be an afterthought in my work I want them to be forthfront I want them to be the ones who you look at and you're like oh my god they're stunning like why why don't I see these images more so I think taking away from that kind of masculine energy that is so prevalent and so much more valued in society I think is needed like it's it's so needed <laughs> but it's disappointing that in queer spaces that's still a prevalent issue definitely I mean I remember like before I found kind of the queer community I was very much part of the lesbian community and I felt very on the outer because I was not thin I was not mask presenting I was hyper feminine I was fat I was everything that like people just kind of don't really want to interact with because it's too hard you're not queer enough you're not gay enough you're not you're not enough and I didn't feel comfortable in that and so through like meeting all these amazing queer people and having the blessing of being able to photograph these people um, I feel like I have become stronger within my own identity through it which I think is really important yeah so it's it's both something that is really good for you and your soul and also for other people especially like with my most recent like series that I've done this is a collection of work that I have but I did a series at No Vacancy Gallery earlier in the year as part of French Film Festival, uh, French Festival, and um, they—it was basically showing a bunch of incredible artists, queer artists who were not the average queer artists that you would see. Like to actually have like multi artists front and center, to have some of my work there, which was showing a whole bunch of different queer people in my series that was called Mirrors which was basically overlays of different images of I think 15 different people who are friends of mine and to have your work in such a central space in the city it's pretty unheard of as like a queer artist so I see things are slowly changing but it's we've still got a long way to go. So in the art space what do you think is the situation in terms of um, yeah, having that room for, for queer artists and their work and also in terms of the like the fem, more femme representations. We've got a lot of work to do, especially in spaces that will represent bodies like mine and m- more putting like indigenous and POC voices to the front. I feel like that's a really a thing that 
Melbourne and just generally Australia needs to do more because it is severely lacking. It is an incredibly whitewashed town and even art space, like it's a very wide-eyed space and I definitely recognise my own privilege in like taking up some of that space. But I think through, hopefully through my work at least, I hope to highlight that there is so much more to this queer community than what is seen on like, I don't know, a midsummer pamp. And, and you're defining that as opposed to it coming from another gaze. I feel like I could talk to you for ages, but I'm going to just ask one more question. So in terms of having that more intersectional perspective, which sounds like you do with your work, so say, for example, if you're photographing a person of colour or someone with a different experience to your own, how do you, as the photographer, as sort of, I guess there's an element where you're controlling that gaze, how how do you navigate that? So I will always have several conversations before I even sit down with someone to shoot them. Um, I will make sure that I have... uh, made them feel as comfortable in the space that we are shooting in as I physically can. Either that's through conversation, us having a beer, us talking out any hesitancies that they may have. I also can sometimes not even shoot them. I will say, I know another photographer who could shoot you, who is a person of colour, who may make you feel better. Like, I can actually divert my own work to other friends who are also photographers who may make that person feel more comfortable. There are so many different ways that I can make my clients feel comfortable and at ease Um, and yeah most of the time I'm very lucky that my clients do feel good with me and so they I don't have to do that but there is always that option because there are so much there's so much like creative talent in like and photographers in Melbourne who are people of color and like for example like Zach Ahmed there's a Tonga Tem they're all amazing black photographers in Melbourne who have exceptional work and should definitely be looked into as well so there's so much talent here it's absurd sometimes to think about well it's really exciting and it sounds like you have a really beautiful approach and gentleness in the way that you you do your work and it shows through so thank you so much laura for speaking with me today no problem no problem at all (laughs) that was an audio i did at a art show with laura duvet who's an artist who engages with her work and her sorry her identity as a fat femme and others who identify on the feminine spectrum and her work also explores notions of self-care, emotional vulnerability, body image and she actively works to move away from the white heterosexual male gaze so it's really interesting work that she does. I'm going to play a song now by Sampa the Great, one of the few that doesn't have swear words in it. <laughs> um, this one is called I Am Me, it's off the new album Birds and Bees. And that was Sampa with I Am Me. And now we're going to be listening to an interview that I did with Rosemary Calder. Rosemary Calder is a health and social policy advisor at Vic University and she joined us to discuss the link between socioeconomic status and chronic disease. Chronic disease are those conditions that we now take for granted because they're so pervasive, but which are the new phenomenon in health 
very different to 100 years ago when people died at earlier ages of infectious diseases like measles, polio mm. and a whole range of things. We now mostly are protected from sudden death from infection or trauma because we have vaccinations for the population of antibiotics, although, as you know, they're somewhat challenged these days because of multiple use. And we've got very good recovery capacity from trauma. We are very accident conscious. We're road accident conscious. We have reduced the ways in which we die from accident and, and infection at earlier ages. So we're living longer. But we're also living at a time when there is a great deal more food than we've ever had before. We don't have to mm. go and dig up our own food. We don't have to walk miles to the nearest shop. We have food everywhere we look, in service stations, in vending machines, at every outlet you can ever think of. And so we have a vast supply of food. We have a great deal of packaged food. 40, 50 years ago, people would have eaten a much higher proportion of fresh fruit and vegetables than they do these days, much more likely to have something prepared that you buy on the way home or that you've bought and put in the freezer. And as a result, our health conditions have changed. We've gone from infection and trauma being what's most likely to make you really sick or even kill you, to you're more likely to have put on weight. You're more likely to have developed, developed a range of cancers, some of which are preventable and most which now are treatable so that you live with them chronically. You're much more at risk of developing heart disease. We recover more from heart attacks, but we live with heart disease. You're much more likely to develop diabetes, particularly type 2, and particularly because of weight gain and food and nutrition choices you're much more likely to have a range of mental health conditions than we once were aware of. So chronic diseases are all those conditions that we live with because they become chronic. They may precipitate in and out of hospital from time to time, but largely you live with them and you live with them in the community and you try and work with them. So that's why they're referred to as chronic diseases. And they're recognised internationally. This is just mm. It's happening all around the world and the World Health Organisation has developed a global action plan to try and reduce preventable chronic mm. diseases by and the I, year 2025 across the world. And I guess this is where Australia's health tracker by socioeconomic status comes in. Can you tell us a bit more about that report? Sure, that's a report that we developed in order to identify just how clearly socioeconomic status puts us at greater risk of preventable chronic diseases. It's fair to say that those people who can afford to do so ensure that they do stay as healthy as possible. They can afford to go to gym. They can afford access and do have easy access to fresh food. They're very aware of health messages. They're much less likely to smoke, more likely to go for a walk rather than sit and watch television. Whereas the lowest levels of income, the bottom 40% of income socioeconomic status in Australia, people are much more likely to have 
less resources with which to buy fresh food, less resources with which to make choices about what they do with their with their time, less likely to have capacity to mm. go to a gym for physical activity, less likely to be aware of what is good health and good good healthy food and good healthy activity. Much more likely to have risk factors for chronic disease because mm. of all of that. So they are the least likely to have good levels of physical activity. They're the most likely to have high blood pressure. They're much more likely to have developed diabetes. Much, much more likely to be obese, particularly the bottom 20% of income and socioeconomic status. Mm. Much more likely to still be smoking. Yeah. And indeed, there are even there's a marginally higher rate of suicide amongst the lowest income groups. Mm. So I'm, I'm, from what I'm hearing is that there's a lack of um, resources and, I guess, access to services that could perhaps um, um, ward off chronic disease? Yeah, it, we think it's a complex mix of things. Mm. And it is certainly that the lower your income, the less likely you are to have chronic, established chronic diseases managed well with a primary care provider or a specialist, you're much more likely to be at risk of developing preventable chronic disease because of the resources that you haven't had in using. We talk about environments being obesogenic, which means there are environments, physical environments, which promote weight, weight gain. If you live in a neighbourhood which is very dense traffic, doesn't have walking paths, maybe doesn't have very many parks, and you have to manage a bunch of children, you're much less likely to have opportunities to take them to the park, mm. which would be a really good thing for their health and your, your health. But if that's your suburb, it's not going to encourage you to do that. Mm. And in an article you wrote in the conversation, an article that we will share on our Facebook page as well as our 3CR website, you write that a comprehensive government commitment is needed to improve our health. Can you give us some examples of that commitment? Well, we need it to be comprehensive because health is the product of a whole range of things, not just health services. Mm. So we've got very good health services. Um, What I've just described is that some people don't have the support and what they need that would work for them from those health services. So we certainly need health services and we need a commitment to those health services working for people who are experiencing disadvantage and who are at more risk of chronic disease. But we also need environments to be less obesogenic. We need environments to promote physical activity. We need to make certain that we put in as much effort as we can nationally into ensuring access to healthy food for the vast majority of people, and particularly those who are disadvantaged. So we've got good strategies like the Healthy Food Star Rating, which encourages people to check what they're buying. But if, again, you're a low-income family, you've got multiple children, you perhaps haven't gone all the way through school yourself, you're less likely to be guided by that. You're less likely to even know what it means for you. And we need to be much more 
focused on helping people with disadvantage. Australia's health track of socioeconomic status makes it very clear that we ought to be putting our policy effort into worrying about those with the least resources in our country because they are the most unhealthy. And they're unhealthy not by choice, but by circumstances. circumstances. And that needs a comprehensive strategy, including urban planning, making sure that we have walking trails, physical activity for children, making sure that every child, rather than being driven and dropped at the gates of the school, is encouraged to walk a kilometre to and from school and is picked up a kilometre away from school if indeed they have a driving parent. We need to be focused on what children have to eat at school. We mm. need to make certain we've got healthy food for all our children, regardless of their socioeconomic circumstances. Mm. We need to reduce sugar in our diet, and that includes reducing the volume of sugar-sweetened beverages that almost everybody these days includes in their daily diet. So it has to be comprehensive. It's not just about health services. It's about mm. the food chain. It's about the physical environment in which people work, live and go mm. to school. And it's about how physically active those environments are. Those environments enable people to be. Exactly. And for our listeners and I guess the wider public, what is one thing that we can take away from this interview that we could incorporate into our own lives? Everybody should increase their physical activity. It is mm. the one thing that is actually very easy. It's a walk before you go to bed. It's all getting up earlier to go for a walk around the block. It is taking your children to the park, wherever that park is, by foot and having an hour's play outdoors once a weekend. We have, and again, it's not by choice, it's by circumstances. We've become the community that sits in front of television, that gets in the car to go to work or to go to school, or it just doesn't walk because the, the environment is not engaging and it's not attractive and we don't see walking mm. as good for our health. That's the most accessible thing that we've got available to us and we should all be making a really strong effort to be more physically active. Excellent. I was about to take the tram home after this interview, but you've inspired me to walk instead. Um, it's not too far from the station, actually. So thanks for that, Rosemary. Well, that's a very good idea. And even walking to a tram is better than getting in the car. Absolutely, absolutely. It can only help. Thanks for joining Tuesday Breakfast. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was Rosemary Calder discussing the link between socioeconomic status and chronic disease. Australia's health tracker by socioeconomic status is the latest report card as part of the Australia's health tracker series and can be found online. A link will be provided on the 3CR Tuesday breakfast page. And now we are going to speak with Chelsea Clark. Chelsea is a lawyer with the Migration Program at Victoria Legal Aid. Thank you for joining us this morning, Chelsea. Thanks, Lauren. So um, maybe to set the scene a little for what we're going to talk about, um, could you start by explaining to our listeners what the Immigration and Assessment Authority, Immigration Assessment Authority is? Sure. Um, well, I'm sure people are aware, or maybe not, but in December 2014, the Commonwealth Parliament brought into um, play a new statutory scheme, 
which was designed to process protection visa applicants of boat arrivals who arrived after 13th of August 2012. Um, so, in effect, this new statutory scheme established a two-stage process. The first stage r remains relatively unchanged and is an application made by the asylum seeker to the Department of Immigration um, and that's assessed by a delegate of the minister. However, if the delegate refuses the application for a protection visa, a fast-track applicant has no right to apply to the AAT for full merits review of the delegate's decision. And rather, they established this new Immigration Assessment Authority and the decision of the delegate is automatically referred to the Immigration Assessment Authority or the IAA, who conducts a limited review. Okay, so back before this IAA was introduced... Um, what you're saying is people could have their um, the assessments of their claims, those decisions could be reviewed by the AAT, which is the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And That's what, correct. what kind of review were they allowed to have under the old system with the AAT? Sure. So under the um, um, AAT and, and common to merits review processes um, across Australian law, um, the reviewer in that system stands in the shoes of the primary decision maker and they exercise all the powers of the original decision maker. However, um, in the, the IAA scheme, that's very different and the powers of the IAA are extremely limited. So one example would be um, at the AAT, there's always a, a right to a hearing, whereas in, under the IAA system, there's no entitlement to a hearing. And generally, the IAA um, is obliged to um, make a decision based solely on what is called the review material, which is the papers that are provided to the IAA by the Secretary of the Department. Right. And so in practical terms, like I know um, from the work that I've done in um, assisting people with their protection visa applications, sometimes between the first time you apply for a visa and review stage, we can be talking about a couple of years. Um, and in that time, for example, the situation in your country of origin can really change, like wars may begin or end or conflicts may like change um, contextually. So it's actually probably quite important for new material to be allowed in. Would you say that's that's correct? De definitely correct. Um I'd say one thing, the the, um, the idea of this new statutory scheme or the fast track process was to um, make that pr part of the process, so the review part of the process happen quickly um, and in uh, so to try and avoid those sorts of situations whereby, you know, there's a complete change in country information um, between the date of the primary decision and the fast track decision. However, in reality, those times have blown out. The other thing is there is um, the ability for the um, IAA to take into account new information. However, that's only in exceptional circumstances. So you, um, you, there is a, something you can do to try and bring in new information, but you have to jump through a few heat, um hoops before that information can be considered by the IAA. Mm. But, I, but definitely in practical terms, um, rather than being focused on providing fairness to asylum seekers and obtaining all of the available information um, to make the correct or preferable decision, the IAAs can only conduct this very limited review according to the limiting rules. 
So the fast track process is definitely less fair and less thorough than the processes that many of us access every day um, and is um, creating situations whereby asylum seekers are blindsided by issues and evidence that they had no idea that they had to deal with. So by doing that, the system creates a real risk that claims of people seeking asylum will not be properly considered and therefore create a risk that these people will be, will be returned to countries where they're not safe. Mm. Um, and so you're currently working on a case um, about this issue that was heard by the full court of the High Court last week called Plaintiff M174 of 2016 and the Minister for Immigration. Could you tell us about this case and what you're hoping it will achieve? Well, our client in that matter um, is a young Iranian man who claims he fled Iran due to a well-founded fear of persecution on account of, amongst other things, his rejection of Islam. Uh, Since being in Australia, he claims that he has been attending church and has converted to Christianity. Um, The delegate of the minister rejected his claims and did so without giving him a chance to comment on some adverse comments provided by the applicant's pastor after the interview with the delegates. Um, and those, those adverse comments were that he hadn't been attending church in recent months. Um, the delegate relied on these comments uh, to find that the applicant was not a genuine Christian and reject his visa application. So in effect, the, um, the, our client just did not have procedural fairness, did not have an opportunity to explain those comments by the pastor um, whether or not he could have is probably not the issue. It's, he, he was not provided with the opportunity to do so. Um, and because he's um, a fast-track applicant, his, the delegate's decision was automatically referred to the IAA for review. And because of the restrictive terms of the statute um, that guides the IAA, the IAA was prevented from putting that adverse information from the pastor to the applicant for comment. Our client tried to answer those comments by providing letters from churchgoers um, who said that they believed that he was a genuine and faithful Christian. But again, the IAA found that it was prevented from taking into account those comments in making its decision. And so the IAA went on to affirm the delegate's decision. So that's we took that to the High Court on the 7th of December. And one of the things we argued was that um, the IAA acted unreasonably in failing to take into account those new letters from fellow churchgoers. However, the more um, important question was what effect, if any, does the delegate's breach of procedural fairness at the primary stage have on the jurisdiction of the IAA? So one question was, can that automatic referral of the delegate's decision to the IAA essentially immunise the error of the delegate from any form of review, even when the IAA does not have the power itself to provide the applicant with procedural fairness or cure the error? Or alternatively, as we argued, does the delegate's jurisdictional error have the effect that there's no decision in law capable of being referred to or reviewed by the IAA. Wow. So we... (laughs) um, I'll try and make that... We sort of... We argued that the scheme must be interpreted as a whole and must be fair when interpreted as a whole and therefore a breach of procedural fairness at the primary stage, at the delegate stage, affects the whole process. Mm. 
Because in Australia, we're all entitled to procedural fairness, right? This is a cornerstone of our legal system. Natural justice and procedural fairness underpin every decision that our administrative decision makers make. Um, but in terms That's of, correct. and so in terms of people seeking asylum, is that is there a different standard, or is the government applying a different standard? In relation, in relation to the IAA and the new fast track scheme, yes, there's a different standard. So, okay. and that, and that's not. Um, it's that in itself is not unlawful. Um, it, it it's always um, the the parliament can always legislate out of natural justice or um, procedural fairness. Um, there's a bit of an academic debate as to whether that can go so far that the constitution will, you know, kick in. But and section 75 of five of the constitution will kick in. But in general terms, if if you use clear words of necessary intent, you can out procedural fairness. Um, what I guess we were arguing is that they haven't done that in this case, um, and that what in fact they've done is established a two-step process, um, and. And sorry, one process with two stages, and that they must be interpreted together, and that as a whole, they must they must be fair. Mm. Well, I think everybody would definitely agree with that that sentiment. Um, and just to finally um, to wrap this up, could you tell us now, um, from your experience and what you're seeing in your work, um, what's the situation for people seeking asylum who are onshore in Australia now after the big 1st of October deadline and the IAA and all of that, what's happening at the moment? Okay, so um, currently there's about there's been about 3,800 referrals to the IAA. Um, for um, the situation post 1st of October 2017, amazingly, almost all applications were lodged um, according to department figures um, that were current as of the 1st of November 2017, um, 71 um, applicants um, didn't lodge their protection visas um, by the 1st of October. However, there's 14,483 applications that are currently before the department that are yet to be determined. Oh my gosh. Um, there are 8,281 applications that have been finalised and of those, 78% have resulted in a grant of a visa. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so does that mean automatically that the other 22% will go to the IAA for review or are those people at risk of deportation? Or So of those... of, of the, the figures aren't as easy to interpret as that because there are um, the legacy caseload is a bit complicated. Not all of them went through the fast track system, but the, of the eight thousand two hundred and eighty one um, that have been finalised, I don't know how many of those were granted a visa straight away by the delegate, or how many of those um, went through the IAA and then were granted a visa after the IAA had affirmed the decision of the delegate. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. What I do know is that in um, of all the cases that have so far been refer referred to the IAA um, because they were unsuccessful at the delegate stage um, and they, from countries from Iran, Afghanistan and Sri Lanka, the remittal rate 
which means where the IAA disagrees with the delegate and says, no, this person is a refugee and, and um, remits the matter to the department with a, a direction that this person meets the criteria for the visa. Um, the remittal rate for those three countries is 20 to 30 percent. And that's slightly concerning when that's compared to the remittal rate for those same countries um, from the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which provides full merits review. Um, the remittal rate in those cases is around upwards of 75%. Wow. Um, so you can see a, a bit of a difference yeah. there. Oh, gosh. Um, well, that was very enlightening if kind of depressing. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for talking with us and thank you for the work that you do. Um, it's really important Pleasure. public work and we wish you all the best with the High Court case. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Chelsea. And that was Chelsea Clark, who is a senior migration lawyer with Victoria Legal Aid. And now we are going into a song. I'm going to play a tune, a uh, new song uh, by the band Totally Mild, they're a local band, and our friend Hannah really likes this song, and it's a good kind of, I think, a slow and cruisy one to wake up in the morning. It's called Lucky Stars. Into the end, try to pretend Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty, say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah.
So it's time for our alt news t- uh, section of the program. We were just talking while our song was on about how much we love that tune. It's really catchy. Yeah, love it. <laughs> so, well, first off, we're just looking at the newspaper. We get all the papers delivered uh, mm. to the station every morning, and we're just looking at the at the covers. It's just completely splayed with um, cricket. Mm. Yeah, news. And, and, and no shade to people who um, watch cricket. I enjoy. I don't mind playing cricket. I just don't. It's like watching dry paint. But <laughs> well, it's also like nothing else happened yesterday. Like yeah, exactly. you know, the bu- the budget wasn't announced. That's going to cut all of this money from welfare recipients Absolutely. and force people to pay back ridiculous hex debts, seven thousand dollars less or in their pocket, you know, than before, and mm. all of that sort of thing. Not to mention what's happening on Manus or yeah. Mm, like anything. Yeah. So there's a lot about us as a society that we've got this as the priority. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, Bob Hawke would be really angry with us for saying <laughs> this yeah. right now. As Ayan mentioned, Sorry, we're Bob. not dissing anyone that likes cricket. We just don't understand the appeal ourselves. Yes. And we don't. And it's know. priorities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perhaps this is a critique on the mass media more than it is on cricket. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. Cricket, we love you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't bring yeah. us saying we're with cricket. Yeah, don't tweet us. Don't <laughs> at us. Don't at us. Yes, that's it. <laughs> So what do we have today? So, well, we're quite lucky because we have a, a legal expert. Oh, that's really a title I'm not comfortable <laughs> with. <laughs> well, Lauren, you know, you, you often sell yourself short and you have a lot of knowledge and we want to talk to you about, because you work specifically um, with child sexual abuse um, survivors. Is I that do. correct? I do. So we should probably give a, um, a yes. content warning for this discussion. So um, we will be discussing the Royal Commission inst- into institutional responses to child abuse. So um, if you if this is going to trigger anything for you, um, maybe just switch off for five or ten minutes. Um, but also give CASA a call on the crisis line on 1800 806 292. That's 1-800-806-292. It's a 24-hour crisis line and there'll be a counsellor available on the other end if you need anything. Um, And I guess that's especially important. Just please take care of yourselves during all of this publicity around the Royal Commission because it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's so important. Mm. So can you tell us what this Royal Commission is, when it came out? Just give us a brief overview. Sure. Um, So Julia Gillard... um, called for the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse um, a number of years ago. And actually, I'm not, I wasn't working in the space at the time. I think it was about 2013 or 14. Um, and they have just done a phenomenal job. I think they've done over 40,000 private sessions with survivors around the country. Wow. They have gone into... There's been hearings in every single state um, and territory. They've had prison visit programs because, unfortunately, a lot of our prisoners are survivors, victim survivors of child sexual abuse. Um, They have examined religious institutions, educational institutions, state-run institutions, um, the scouts, all sorts of, you know, just anywhere where this has existed um, and that it has been covered up and that people have suffered. Um, they've also gone offshore and looked into Australia's immigration detention. So it's not just religious. I thought it was just religious. No, okay, it's institutional. Right. So mm. it the only, um, I think the only defining thing that that uh, that has to be present is that there is an institution involved. So like I said, scouts or Department of Education. Um, like foster care and stuff? Foster care, kinship mm. care, um, the Salvation Army, like mm. institutions, but then also... Um, 
sorry, religious institutions, but also things run by those institutions. So school camps or like youth camps, really, yeah, anywhere where um, there was a duty of care and that duty of care was breached. Okay. Mm. And so can you give us a brief overview of what the, the findings Oh, God. Um, there's like 17 <laughs> volumes of that of the final report. Wow. Um, but basically, look, the commission has been pretty, pretty open and pretty vocal um, over the last couple of years about some inherent failings, in particular of the Catholic Church. Um, and just there's just been a lot of recommendations about reporting mechanisms and how transparency and accountability needs to be promoted within institutions and some new behaviour models that people need to take in terms of empowering children to speak, but also recognising that the onus is not on the children mm. and reinforcing that idea of a duty of care and the protection that the people running the institutions need to have. So, you know, I'm sure that you would have seen in the news, they've done things like if a child tells you in confession, if you're a priest, that they've been abused, then you have a duty of care mm. to do something about it. But was that was that the case previously? Because I know, you know, outside of religious institutions, it's mandatory if you think that there's a, um, sexual abuse going on with a child that you have to report it. Mm-hmm. Was that not previously the case if you're a priest? So, I mean, I'm not entirely sure about in terms of like the relationship between mandatory reporting and confessionals because as far as I understood it, mandatory reporting is mandatory reporting. Like it is, it that is the law for everybody, but um, canon law is separate um, and I'm not sure about the interplay of that. But certainly, um, you know, the Royal Commission canvassed thousands and thousands of reports of reports of abuse being made outside of the confessional but still in the context of a religious school so perhaps Mm. they told a teacher and it wasn't in confession but that teacher still didn't tell anybody Um, Mm. or in a lot of cases and this is quite horrific would actually physically punish the child for having told somebody Mm. Um, so you know it's those kinds of reporting mechanisms that the Royal Commission is saying there needs to be somewhere safe that a child can Mm. go to speak about what's happening to them because it is just not um, it's just not good enough. Yeah, and that silence is frightening. It is, with yeah. the, Sorry, with the duty of care, what if you're a teacher and someone mm. and you suspect, um, is there a duty of care? Is, the, is suspecting enough to um, let the authorities know that perhaps something is going on with the... I think it, it rests on um, on how reasonable your suspicion is and how much mm. information you have to, you know, if your if your student is coming in covered in bruises every day, yeah. then I think that that's that's a situation in which you would have to that would be mandatory reportable. But right. I'm not sure if you just you know if they've said one thing off the cuff and you're not 100 yeah. percent sure. Perhaps there'd have to be some kind of investigation or yeah. something first. Mm. And it is it's hard to imagine. I don't know if there are specific recommendations, but for you know a child to um, you know seek seek someone out or seek you know I I don't know exactly how it would work but in the context where the community largely seems to be ignoring or covering up abuse like are they saying what it might look like for a child to be able to seek someone or something outside of their community Mm. um I think there's a lot of recommendations for different community or different types of organizations Um, And so perhaps that would depend on the type of institution we're talking about. So, you know, um, maybe a good example is the Yeshiva case study. Um, Mm. So for those people who don't know, Yeshiva is the Jewish school. um, And well, there is a couple of them in Australia, but the case study into the Yeshiva found that the particular type of um, religious community that was quite insular 
um, created a situation in which children didn't feel that they had the ability to speak to people about Mm. what was happening. So perhaps that would be a little different to someone um, who was abused in the context of being, you know, on the weekend at Scouts or something Mm. where they were still going home to their parents. And it was so I think maybe that would be a bit contextual. But Mm. yeah, I guess Mm. you hear that a lot about. you know, religious schools um, and, yeah, it's associated a lot with religious institutions which then end up being quite as well insular communities. Absolutely. So, yeah, it does make mm. it a really difficult situation in, yeah. that, in that regard. Mm. Um, um, will there be – do you think there will be a policy – is the idea for this report, um, commission report, um, is the idea that a report uh, – not a report, sorry, but potential to receive compensation or is it just sort of like a – like something that's documented and sort of like oh it happened let's do better or yeah are there tangible actions so it's it's both I think um part of the importance of the royal commission was that um survivors have been validated and empowered um the the private sessions that the royal commission has held have meant that people have been able to sit down one-on-one with somebody who has listened to their story Mm. in a safe space and that's that's a really validating thing um and it's just, it's really important. Uh, mm. You carry this around for your entire life and, and nobody really believes you. It's, mm. it's really important. But then also the Royal Commission has made a number of recommendations for policy and law change. And one of them is the federal redress scheme. So the, um, the proposal is that victim survivors of child, child sexual abuse um, in institutions would be able to apply for a payment of one hundred up to $150,000, um, which the Royal Commission has recommended 200000 but mm. the legislation that's being proposed by the federal government is 150000 is the cap. Um, and it's basically compensation for the pain and suffering mm. that they they experienced as children. Mm. Um, there is It's still in bill stage, so um, there's a few things that need to be worked out. There's some concerns mm. that, for example, the legislation um, proposed excludes people who have served jail sentences which is really unfortunate because a lot of people in prison are Mm. sexual abuse survivors um so that's that's a real point of contention and the royal commission certainly um have have been really good at engaging with um criminalized populations so yeah there's a few things that need to be worked out and it's a bit all up in the air as to how it's going to go but certainly the commission has proposed a lot a lot of really big changes and really important changes. Mm. So hopefully people listen. And can, mm. Sorry. I just wanted to know um, who 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 pays for the – like who's doing the compensating? Is it mm. the institutions or themselves or um, – So the idea is that – so the federal government is saying, yes, um, they are on board. Um, state governments will need to refer powers, sort of sign on in a really technical legal way – um, and then they would be liable to they would be liable to pay for abuse that happened in state run institutions and then individual religious and non religious institutions would also have to sign on so you know then for example, the salvos would have to pay for abuse that right. happened in salvation army institutions right. and so on, which is kind of what happens now in a, we don 't have a formal redress scheme, but um for example, what I work in is that is yeah, you can make claims against institutions for abuse that you suffered as a child and that institution is responsible mm. for paying it. Okay. And it's so important what you said um, about them being heard because, you know, now when you hear about all the um, sexual assault victims, you hear about them going to authorities 
and 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 no one listening to mm. them and so i think maybe i shouldn't undermine how important listening is and just being validated knowing that because it's nothing worse than feeling like you know or i imagined it or it wasn't as serious as mm-hmm. i thought it was and and just sort of saying you know there's there's something in document that says this will not happen or this happened and it was horrible and i think yeah. just physically like what it will do is, mm. is is really important i think well yeah and the impacts that it can have on your entire life you may not realize when you're a child but mm. um yeah absolutely do you have um this is probably a tricky question but it, what do you predict will be the actual a- outcome do you think that these oh, recommendations will goodness. be <laughs> take it like you know what how do you see it look i think um i think everybody is really horrified by what the commission has brought out um, I think there are some things that we can't know yet because there are a few really high-profile cases still being heard by the courts, mm-hmm. and I think that the outcome of those, good, bad, or otherwise, may have some bearing on how people choose to respond to the Royal Commission's recommendations. Um, but I think, I think finally, we are seeing people recognise the lifelong impacts of child abuse and how seriously that needs to be taken. So. We are seeing courts understanding it more in their sentencing remarks. We are seeing state governments more willing to sign on to things like the redress scheme. And we're seeing really state governments changing their state legislation, which will allow people to bring claims for abuse, um, even if the abuse happened decades ago and all of these sorts of things. So I think slowly but surely we are seeing some good changes. Mm. I'm not sure about how much the Catholic Church is going to accept the Royal Commission's recommendations. It seems like there's a bit of, well, I'm not sure if you read the news about it, it seems like there's a bit of tension about that, but, you know, I'm not a spokesperson for the church. Mm. So I guess we'll just have to we'll wait see and what see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for that. And up next, we'll, ha- we'll be hearing from Charlotte Lynch, who is a human rights activist from the group Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance. <clears throat> Join us to mark 100 years since the serenading of Adela Pankhurst, imprisoned at Pentridge for her anti-war activities. Serenading Adela, a street opera, recreates the summer night when hundreds of supporters sang socialist songs and cooeyed over the prison walls. Come along to Pentridge on Sunday the 7th of January or catch our December preview. It's all free. For details, search Serenading Adela or email serenadingadela at gmail.com. A 3CR supporter. Are you aged over 65? The University of Melbourne is conducting interviews exploring how radio can impact well-being. Researchers will interview you for 60 minutes and in return you'll be given a $25 gift card. For more information, please visit cbf.com.au forward slash wellbeing. This research is proudly funded by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A 3CR supporter. And if you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on your 8.55 a.m. dial. It is, I think, 8.14, 8.14, 8.15, depending on what clock you're looking at because we've got two in the room. Um, and now on the line we have Charlotte Lynch. Charlotte is a human rights activist from the Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Alliance based in Nam. Thanks for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Charlotte. 
Thanks so much for having me. Sharla, can you tell us who Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Alliance, WAKA for short, are? Yeah, sure. So they're a, um, an, a group of activists who um, formed together about 10 years ago. Um, when I, Actually, when I was like, I'm only young, so when I was in high school, mm. uh, when all the um, WikiLeaks stuff happened and they um, formed uh, to like in solidarity, they worked in solidarity with um, Chelsea Manning, um, and like that's how they kind of started out um, as an as a coalition against war, like mm. collective against war, um, and against co- like the prioritization of corporate interests over human rights and people. Mm. And so uh, they um, now it's just a group of um, like people of all different ages come together in Melbourne to. Um, organise and do activism mainly about um, refugee stuff and um, anti-racism. Right. And speaking of anti-racism, um, you were there for the um, protest um, that happened um, against um, uh, Milo. Uh, can you tell us who Milo is for those who've been living under a rock? Yeah. <laughs> so Milo is a pretty... Um, disgusting person. Mm-hmm. He's an, uh, basically described as like an alt-right um, provocateur. So he kind of um, was one of the people who was instrumental in getting this um, movement of like young, angry, racist white guys in America to mobilise and um, vote for Trump. Mm. And um, he he's British, but um, he mainly, like his main audience is in the US. Um, and he's got some really despicable views. Like he's a, he's a real misogynist. Mm. He has nothing is off limits in terms of um, what kind of vulnerable people he'll mm. target. Um, mm. He's endorsed pedophilia. He's no problem sexualizing teenagers, yeah. and um, and he's incredibly racist in his um, ideology. Mm. And so um, yeah, he did, he did a book tour. He was invited. Um, he was basically welcomed by Australia's um, politicians with open arms, invited mm. to speak at Parliament. Um, and, yeah, spoke mm. in all Australia's major cities. And I guess that goes to my next question, because um, those who brought him down and those um, who defend him say that, you know, he's just exercising his right to um, freedom of speech. Uh, what do you make about the argument? Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's a, it's you know, it's the go-to argument of um, the conservative movement, mm-hmm. I guess, when um, people kind of rise up to shut down hateful rhetoric. It's always um, freedom of speech is the first thing they use. But um, basically, my my view and the view of probably a lot of people who are at that um, protest, protesting Milo, is that um, there's no freedom of speech for racism. Mm. You know, like. If you if your freedom of speech is to push a hateful ideology um, that wants to exterminate a whole group of people based on their race, then mm. like I don't see why I don't see how in our um, society that would, that that should be a freedom afforded to people like my own. And um, in Australia, we actually don't have a freedom of speech in our constitution. Mm. Um, we have quite we have quite um, regulated. You know, it's quite regulated what we're allowed to talk about in public space. So, um, yeah, I reject that argument. Yeah, and I guess it's also if if 
if we were to entertain the argument, he'd also have to consider and his um, supporters would have to also consider that with free speech comes also the um, our right to hold him accountable and to also push back on such ideas. So um, exactly. I guess he, I mean, yeah, he can say all those things, but he should also know there are consequences. And he's, he's I guess, seen the consequences because he's been fired from, um, what was that position? He was working, I think, for Breibart? Bri- Right, yeah. but yeah, he was fired by an organization that in, endorses um, like right wing politics for being too extreme, which is really, a real wow. indication of where yeah. politics lies. That's the caliber of a, the person we're talking about. So yeah. you were at the Milo protest. Can you tell us just um, quickly, like what happened, what you saw, and um, uh, anything else? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I was there as like. Um, as an anti-racist protester, as an ally, um, and as like a white person myself, I felt it was important to go and um, like physically be there because I knew that the police presence would probably be really over the top as it has been at protests over the you know the past few months in Melbourne. Mm. So, um, what? But what actually happened? Um, I was really, I was really disgusted by um, how it unfolded um, because. Basically, um, you know, I thought that it would be people going into the event and and anti-racist protesters on the outside pushing back, saying, you know, um, look like look at what you're doing, look at the person who you're supporting. But what actually happened was that people showed up who weren't even attending the event, who were there to um, like right-wing protesters showed up just to like suppress our protests. There's like three events happening at once. There was the Milo event, people protested the Milo event, and then right-wing Trump supporters, the flags, the big Q Trump flags, and, like, Nazis um, protesting our protest, mm. which, like, just... Um, so what happened after that was that basically the people went into the first um, event and um, as and a Nazi... I mean, sorry, um, like, fascist uh, Trump supporters started to gather outside... Um, and it happened to be across the road from the flats in, um, in Flemington there. And mm. so where, um, you know, like thousands of black and Muslim people live. And um, so the people on the flats came down to see what was happening. And then they see people waving these huge um, Trump flags and wearing Make America Great Again hats. Mm. And they know what that means. And that means... Um, it means Islamophobia and anti-Muslim rhetoric specifically. Mm. Um, so, as soon as they came down, these these like Trump supporters started yelling um, racist, you know, yelling racist um, insults at them and um, basically try to provoke them. And all they were doing was saying, basically, um, we were born here, we're Australians, like, you know, go back. Like, Trump doesn't belong here, this is mm. Australia, this is not America. Um, and just proudly kind of saying, we live here, this is our place. This is our place. Mm. And, um, and they, what they had to face was actually really disgusting, um, the kind of racism that was being, that was, of course, I mean, these people are there to defend Milo. Yeah. Um, so they were really, um, really aggressive. And the police protected them and allowed them to um, 
to occupy the entire road. It was only 30 or so um, Trump supporters mm. allowed them to occupy the road and scream at um, these people. Yeah. And I heard which, the um, uh, the Milo supporters also had bullhorns and they were saying all these like horrible stuff. Was that curbed or was that allowed? Um, no, that was allowed. The police allowed them to... Which, like, allowed them to spew racist rhetoric, including wow. really, really offensive language. And there were these were kids, you know, old ladies, aunties, uncles, kids, um, primary school age, who were standing outside their home. Right. And um, the police failed to move them on, which is mm. really frustrating for me as a person who attends protests and gets moved on all the time yeah. um, and prevented from, you know... Um, protesting on the road mm. they police failed to move them on even just down the road where they would have um been away from the flats and where people would have felt safer mm. um so yeah and there was also and, i was going to say there was also criticism with the um the organizers or one of the organizers of the uh, protest that when things escalated that um some of them had left um, do you think, in your yeah. personal opinion, that um, anti-protest organisers have some type of duty of care when they enter marginalised communities? Yeah, so um, I think what they... Um, basically, the um, pro- the protest and the police presence escalated to riot police with, um, with batons and uh, deploying pepper spray liberally. And um, it's just this, this whole kind of vibe changed and the organisers decided that the best way to de-escalate was to leave. Um, but they left uh, and, they, and they did that in consultation with people who, with some of the people who lived at the flat. Um, but when they left, the police in Raikia descended on the flat, entered the premises and chased people around the flat for hours that night, mm. kept spraying at people and beating them up. So... Um, it didn't. It didn't do what it was supposed to do, which was to de-escalate. And I think um, they did that with their duty of care in mind, but, um, in an effort to de-escalate. But um, I think, in hindsight, I think they real they realised that that was the wrong decision because those kids um, were traumatised. Mm. Well, a lot of them were traumatised by what happened that night, and. Um, you know, they went to school that week. Um, like, the teacher spoke at a rally that I went to on the weekend, the teacher from the local school, and he said that the, the kids came to school that week just really um, exhausted mm. and um, upset. And, like, you know, if there's young people attending your rally, you really have to mm. look out for them. And also to be aware of the fact that they are um, targeted by police, by those same police, um, all the time, and that's been that's been through the courts and some Sunnington, Kensington um, police officers in the past, like you know, in the past decade or so. Yeah, and I guess they've been exposed. Yeah, I guess that's my concern because um, well, once the protesters leave, you know, these people live in these communities. These people have already been surveillance, and they're visible as well, um, just yeah. due to the uh, uh, color of their skin. So. All yep. these protests are amazing and I'm happy that it's being done. But also, you know, what will happen once, you know, th- th- there's another protest that... So, so so, what I'm trying to say is, um, will there be some sort of... Um, oh, 
is there anything in place that maybe whistleblowers have to prevent that mistake from happening again? Yeah, um, well, we have, like, when we hold rallies, um, I guess we don't really do those um, kind of rallies. That That's run by um, the Campaign Against Racism mm-hmm. and Fascism. Um, but when we hold protests out, I guess, like, we, our method of de-escalating is different. Um, we try things like sitting down um, and, like, like you know, um, having our crowd act in like different ways, like maybe singing or speaking together mm-hmm. in a um, in a human microphone where one person speaks and the crowd repeats it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways that you can de-escalate that don't um, mean leaving. Mm-hmm. But um, so strategies like I that think, do exist. Yeah, um, but sometimes you can't always predict. I mean, the police are unpredictable, and oh, um, yeah, absolutely. So unpredictable, and so sometimes you know, if you sit down, they'll just like trample over the top of you, or right. um, you, they don't always respond to nonviolence mm. with nonviolence. Mm. And um, mm. yeah, I guess it's important to keep that in mind. And but yeah, if you if you're running a protest and anyone mm. any young people join in, they become part of your mm. protest, and you have to look out for them as if they're your um, comrades. Yeah. You know. And before we let you go, can you quickly tell us about um, the Waka protesters? Um, I think there was a blockade on Melbourne's container port. Can you tell us what happened and just oh, yeah. uh, and the significance of um, that action? So, sorry. <laughs> that was a couple of people from Waka, but it was also it was kind of a, um, a mixed collective of people um, from around Melbourne. We um, created a blockade of Melbourne yesterday um, in solidarity with refugees on Manus and Nauru. And we just said that um, basically our message was that our borders shouldn't be open for mm. for trading and for economic profit while they're closed to humanity and while our border policy is, um, is inhumane and was really effective action. And um, our message was heard really loudly and clearly and we had a lot of support from the union. Mm. there and a lot of support from passers-by so yeah. we managed to hold a massive um, blockade and cause massive disruption and draw attention to you know this awful water policy we've got yeah good on you i think that's important to, 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 to do um protests are amazing but it's always good to have like a supplementary thing i guess like like there's something that stops traffic something that inconveniences regular folks because your yeah. your in, your inconvenience is nothing compared to what's happening to yeah. the yeah the communities. Yeah, I mean, look at the you think about inconvenience. Those guys have been on Manus for five years. That's that's their whole like yeah. youth. for some of those guys in their twenties. That's a whole youth. That's mm. more than an inconvenience. That's like taking their life away. Excellent. Th- thank you so much for appearing on Tuesday Breakfast, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. And that was Charlotte Lynch. Charlotte is a human rights activist from the group Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance. And today is the, I think today, is today the last, our last show before we go on holidays? It is. Yes. It is. Um, well, me and Lauren and uh, me and Lauren are coming back and hopefully um, depending on their schedule, no, George think, and Ruby. I think the other two have lives outside of Melbourne. <laughs> no, it's just you and I, babe. not two. <laughs> All right. But yeah, make sure you join us next year. Yes. Perfect. See you then. Bye.